Hello and welcome to the Voices of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Gill, and welcome. If you are a return listener, we really appreciate you coming back and continuing to support the channel. If you are new to the channel, welcome, and we hope that you will find what we were doing here, uh, the, the stories, the experiences of these veterans that we're featuring. We hope you find it interesting and that you'll keep coming back for more. Um, regardless of whether you're new or whether you're coming back, please don't forget to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to learn more about the Voices of Freedom, if you'd like to learn more about our parent organization, the Americans in Wartime Experience, please check our website out at www. I think that's too many W's. Let's go with www.americansinwartime.org. While you're there, you can check out our tank collection. You can listen to more of our interviews, or, or in this case, you can watch them um, if you'd like. Uh, we have over 500 veterans interviews on our website currently, uh, with more being added all the time. Uh, and you can also uh, support us by making a donation. And we are a 501c3. We depend on these donations to keep the lights on, if you will, to keep the cameras rolling, to keep fuel in the tank, uh, to keep uh, the restoration that we're doing on our on our many military vehicles, to keep that all going. Uh, and we really appreciate any amount of uh, uh, donation that you can afford. Uh, again, you can check us out at www.americansinwartime.org and you can make a donation. So, Today's interview, in keeping with our theme, uh, this is June of 2022 when this is being recorded, and as you know, uh, we recognize the World War II veterans, we pay more attention, we focus more on those veterans during this month because of the anniversary of the D-Day invasion on 6 June 1944. So we're going to keep with that theme this month. Our interview today is with U.S. Army Air Corps veteran Brian Clark. Uh, Brian was born in Ohio, but spent most of his childhood in Indiana, uh, and he grew up listening to the stories of his father who served during World War I. Uh, Brian remembers hearing about Pearl Harbor and America's entry into World War II over the radio uh, over a Sunday meal with his family, and during this interview, he reflects upon the emotions that he had listening uh, to the radio and hearing these stories or the account of the uh, attack on America that occurred at Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. In November of 1943, Brian would turn 17 years of age, uh, and he joined the Army Aviation Cadets, the Army Air Corps Aviation Cadets. They had a flight education program. Uh, in January of 44, he was transferred to Biloxi, Mississippi, where he would continue training as a flight mechanic. After he completed that course, he was t uh, sent off to Texas, where he would specialize in the L-5 medical transport airplane. Upon completing his training, Brian went to San Francisco, 
Then he stopped in Hawaii and then eventually was off to Leyte in the Philippines where he would help construct a small air base. Uh, Brian has a very unique experience uh, and perspective uh, when he describes how he and his uh, comrades constructed the air base uh, there on Leyte uh, under the cover of smoke. And this was done to discourage any Japanese attacks uh, from, uh, from the air. Once the airbase was completed and brought online, he remained there uh, as one of the ground crew and uh, to respond to the flight line should there be any crashes. Ryan stated that his most memorable experience during his time, uh, during his service time, was a flight that took him over the devastated city of Hiroshima after the war. Um, So, Without further ado, I bring you the interview with United States Army Air Corps and World War II veteran, Brian Clark. This is Bill Moberly interviewing Brian Clark on the 18th of November, 2014. Brian, tell us a little bit about where you were born and and, um, your path to um, the service, how you ended up in the service. Okay. Well, I was born in Akron, Ohio and uh, brought up in northern Indiana, mostly. And uh, I got concerned about uh, the service when uh, it happened in a Japanese attack. I was uh, at my aunt's at the time for Sunday dinner, and we had the old radio on, and uh, we heard it then. And and I had a brother who, at that time, was just 18, so he was uh, el- he was already in the in the civil or uh, the the draft, and he uh, immediately volunteered for service. So uh, I had that connection. My father was uh, a World War One service person. And uh, he drove a truck over in France. That's about all I know that that he did. Uh, but he was <clears throat> very active in things like uh, VFW, and uh, we were very active at home in learning the or singing the old songs of uh, World War One. Uh, Mom played the piano. And uh, the, uh, the rest of the family, including my sister, sang all the old s- songs. And that held me in good stead later on when I w- went into aviation cadets. I was made uh, song leader officer. To As we marched around, we had to sing songs from one, one class to the next. And so that was... That was my first job, mm. extra job. So I was in, uh, of course I wasn't eligible at the time the war broke out, but uh, then when I graduated from high school, I was still 17. <clears throat> and I had already decided that I wanted to take a whack at uh, uh, aviation cadets. So I looked into that and and I signed up for that and was accepted in uh, aviation cadets. Uh, even though you're 17, they could still swear us in. 
but our uh, service record didn't start until we were 18. And that happened uh, in uh, November of uh, 43, I became 18. And then in January, first part of January of 44, I went into the service uh, and went into Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, and that's where a lot of a lot of cadets went through there. A lot of people in the Air, Air Corps went through Biloxi, Mississippi. But before we even finished up our basic training, is what we were doing, they decided that they had too many aviation cadets, and they, um, I think it was something like 35,000 were uh, changed at that time. But they promised us, since we came direct in, that, is, that we could stay in the Air, Air Corps. We wouldn't be transferred to another unit of the service. So um, they gave us a lot of tests and then had an interview and we were to select what we wanted to do. If, if we passed something, we could select it. And, and I had passed everything, so they gave me my choice. But didn't I want to really be an aviation mechanic? And that's what I did well in. And they needed them right at that time. So I said, no, I want to be a, a radio operator gunner. And they stamped it on there. But that couple of days uh, later, why I got shipped out. There's uh, six of us, I think, uh, out of uh, the cadets there that uh, went to a small outfit in Texas. It was the 160th Liaison Commando. And we were to be trainees in uh, mechanics, and they, which was very, very uh, quick, <laughs> just short orientation type of thing, and then do it yourself. And uh, anybody, if you got stuck on anything, then you ask for help from the old hands. The unit was already going, so it was all filled up uh, when we got there. So we stayed privates the whole time that we were with them. <laughs> and, uh, we didn't think too much about that at, at the time, but I've thought about it since. It didn't seem too fair, but uh, that's the way it was. We, we had a complete unit. So in Texas, we were at a place called Brownwood, Texas, and uh, it was a CCC camp is what we were in, and it had a, a pretty good uh, airfield there. And um, we went through a lot of training, all the units of us. Uh, we had, for airplanes, we had uh, L5s, like homing. In, uh, they were strictly a two-seater, except the back seat came out and the, uh, they, they could put a litter in there. And so it was designed to lift 
people on litters out of short fields, so they had it had a big engine and a lot of lift, big flaps, and so that was our job was to primarily it was a design to get in and out of small fields and be able to remove people, but we did a lot of other things, you know, just like carry messages and all that sort of thing. So we had, we trained there in uh, Texas, <laughs> then we got shipped to um, Statesboro, Georgia, another CC camp, and it was just a different environment, different locale, and different experience for the pilots. We had a probably about, uh, I don't know, there's 24 or 36 pilots. And they're all enlisted men, so they're all sergeants. And uh, the, the the Lycoming was a strictly an inline engine, like a like a Cub, only it, instead of four cylinders, it had six cylinders in it. And um, it was very capable and very uh, w uh, trustworthy plane. We didn't have any problems in it. Um, my philosophy in, in, in my mechanic work, it, it's, it is real important, and it's, there's a guy up there floating around, <coughs> and, uh, and it needed to be working good all the time. So I, I took my work very seriously. And never had any any problems whatsoever. And even as we got overseas and got into big jungle areas, it became more necessary to to think about that. Uh, from we had uh, the same kind of training there, and moved on to another CC camp in uh, Florida. Northern Florida. Now this was getting more like jungles. They had a lot more snakes and stuff like that. So I think that experience was real good, as I remember standing in in a line in a, for breakfast. Uh, one week we killed three rattlesnakes just standing, in, not in the mess hall, but waiting outside the mess hall. <laughs> And from there, we went to McDill Field, Florida, which was not too far from there. And that's a big, big field. I mean, really big. And that's where we got got our uh, clothes issued and so forth. We were still we had woolens and so forth. And we got all khaki, so we knew we, that was the first hint that we got. We were going to the South Pacific. And then just a couple of weeks there at McDill Field, uh, we uh, moved onto a, a railroad, a train, and we were on there for seven days. And we went all the way to San Francisco then, but it took seven days with this jockeying around the country. But from from then on, we couldn't write home or tell where we were going or when we were leaving and all that. 
But we left from San Francisco. <clears throat> that was quite an experience. Everybody had to be up on board. It was a large ship. I don't know how many thousands, but there was thousands of guys on that thing. Some of the bunks, there were some of those bunks went up to five, stacks of five, three to five. Mine, unfortunately, was in one of the fives. <laughs> and I spent as much time as I could up on the top. But we were going out and going under the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, everybody had to watch and ooh and ah. And, and it was very magnificent. There big swells came. And uh, slowly, everybody disappeared. And, you know, and I looked around, there was just hardly anybody left. And that was the first ordeal we had, and that was everybody throwing up. And that on a troop ship with thousands of guys was, was a, a real experience, I'll tell you. Was your equipment on the ship with you? No. No, we had nothing except um, we had our own uh, uh, rifles, whatever we were assigned, and I was assigned to carbine. And uh, and our backpacks, and that was it. So the equipment, and it wasn't there when we we got there where we we're going either. It took about a week or two weeks before we got our planes over there. And uh, we took the long way around because a lot there's parts of the Middle Pacific that was still not in the U.S. hands, and, you know, we had to go around, and so we went around to New Guinea, and we stopped in New Guinea, and we were there for just a couple of days, and we found out that we were on our way to the Philippines, that they had, a couple of days before, had landed on the Philippines, but we missed the big, uh, bunch, which was just as well because we weren't uh, troops that were going to land on the shore and stuff like that. But we did uh, uh, get up to the Philippines in about four days, I think, something like three or four days. It wasn't a very long trip from there. We'd been on the other ship for 30 days. And uh, so we landed on Leyte. That's the only beaches that uh, they had at that time. And we got off on uh, on out of cargo nets. They had put cargo nets over the side, and we got off in the, in the, on the cargo nets. And eat. you had to carry your own duffel bag and your own weapon down the cargo net, that wasn't kind of unhandy, you know, and we didn't have any practice on that either. It was it, do it. And uh, they read, they put smoke down for us. They, they were having trouble with uh, dive bombers, uh, especially on troop ships, you know. So we were in smoke all the time that we were unloading. And our <laughs> Uh, CEO told us, you know, I said, just go to this particular area on the beach and dig foxholes and don't stop till we tell you to. So 
Boy, we had this, uh, my buddy and I, whoever I was buddied up with, uh, we had us a deluxe one, you know, a roof and all, you know. And we worked all day long on that foxhole, and then they hollered, okay, load up, we're <laughs> moving down the, the line. So we were going down in a small uh, landing ship, men, uh, and uh, it was dark when we got on, dark when we got off, and then it raining also. So we were just dumped out and said, okay, well, you're on your own. I mean, in other words, you had, had to make camp for yourself with your shelter half. I slept in a, in a great big truck up in the cab, and it was right nice and dry <laughs> that night. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. So I had learned as a Boy Scout, I had the Boy Scouts training that I had was real good. It uh, it I was uh, could handle myself, and uh, there was no problem building a fire and all that sort of thing. And you know, I knew the campcrafts, and that was a big help. We got some basic training in the Air Force, but it was it wasn't much. Most of the guys were floundering around, and, you know, and but uh, I didn't have any trouble. Some way or other, I could figure out something that was better. And then let's see, in, in Leyte, well, we've we got our own uh, air base. There was not, no other planes working on it. It's just one they made with bulldozers and uh, rice paddies, and then uh, in a week or two we got our planes, and then we started had to work them all out and get them all set up. And I really don't know what we were doing most of the time, but I mean, seemed busy. You know, they were doing running dispatches or going someplace else and maybe doing some carrying some. Uh, injured or something like that. But my main job was uh, keeping the NL5 running, keeping it gassed up, making inspections on it every day, (coughs) making sure there wasn't any moisture in the magnetos, stuff like that. And uh, that went on for a couple of months, I guess. And on during that time, I had a, 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 some duties. Uh, a couple of us did. Uh, they sent a couple planes and a couple guys up to uh, where they were sending Corsairs. These are gull-wing jobs with great big radial engines. And they were, it was just mostly dogfighting. They were going up to these other island areas. And uh, in dogfights, they were just 
they're just loaded with uh, machine gun ammunition, no bombs. And uh, so we were there for about a week, and then that's, that ceased. They must have cleaned up that area that they were working on. But it was real interesting from the standpoint of the... <clears throat> it was all Marine pilots, and... Uh, these Corsairs, when they take off, they're real rough. They really sound like ratchety. And uh, I keep think, thinking, that, you know, this is going to flop. It's going to, you know, crack up. And finally, one of them did on the takeoff. And it burned bad. And we, we ran down there. Of course, we didn't know what we were going to do, but we got down there. But they, they had crews with asbestos clothing on, and they got the pilot out of the the cockpit. I don't know if he, he looked pretty bad, but uh, he sure, they sure did a good job of, they knew what they were doing. Now, you were, were you doing maintenance on these Corsairs while you were No, there? we were not. All we were doing was uh, keeping our L5s running, and if they needed some, some parts or somebody to take somebody, uh, Someplace uh, they would, they would do we'd do that. So these L we're just running back and forth. Uh, they were in support of the Corsair mission. Absolutely, yeah. Supplies people. <laughs> yeah, right. And if they needed something that uh, it was another another airport or something, they'd go get it. What do you remember about the planes coming back from the missions? Either the ones you were maintaining or the ones you. That's what I remember a lot about. <laughs> Because they they weren't supposed to do this, but they uh, they all did it. If they had shot something down, they'd do a barrel roll right down on the deck, and that's dangerous. You know, it's really dangerous. But they were so happy, and I, I remember one guy did two, one right after another. So he got two of them, and. Uh, that's what I remember when they come back. There was a lot of rejoicing by the individual. Marine pilots, and and they were doing good. They were, there was quite a few barrel rolls on, going on. And the the Jeff, there's so so many different islands in the, the Philippines, and a, the Japanese had built airstrips all over them, and pretty good ones. And later on, we used one that I'll mention, uh, and and they had dug in pretty good. Well, uh, we went back then to our regular outfit and our regular duties, and we said, "Well, we're going to load up. We're you know we're going every everybody out." You know? So it was a major push into the Luzon, which is the big island in the Philippines, and uh, we would be going to the Lingayen Gulf, which is about halfway up north of Clarkfield, north of Manila, and so forth. And that was a big operation. I mean, really big. That was something to see. Lots, And we were on an LST. And that's a pretty good-sized ship, and but for, made for shallow water and running right up on the beach, that sort of thing. And one thing that was impressive is when we got there, we had a lot of naval... Uh, people going along with us and one of them was a cruiser and that's a big ship and there was a mountain up there and the Japanese had 
build uh, big cannons back into the mountain and they'd run them out on the tracks and then take a couple of shots and then run them back in. And that cruiser pounded all day long trying to knock a rock down over the top of it, you know, and seal it off. Finally, they they dive-bombed it, and that's what shut it, off, shut it off. But we sat in that harbor for a couple of days with a lot of shooting going on, none of it specifically at us, but uh, some of the strays would get pretty darn close. You know, you could see it coming. <laughs> and then uh, we got off there and... Uh, had our own airport, small airport again, I and mean, we were out of the way of all of the big stuff that way. And we operated then out of the Lingayen Gulf. When you were on the, these bases, on the, the uh, runways and, and the, um, the airfields, were you in the line of fire from ground troops at all? or uh, Not... No, not where I was. You know, I never saw any. We had some ground fire at night, and that was just people that were nervous and come zipping by, you know, and be pretty close. But you know, we weren't fired at per se, although we would, we would be uh, susceptible to our own fire that uh, air, anti-aircraft fire uh, that would burst and then it'd come flying down. That's closest I near got, got hit. As one time, Southern Luzon, as a, there was a big battery pretty close to us, and uh, and a couple of uh, Bettys. That's a bomber. Uh, Japanese bomber kept coming over and they'd be shooting at it and, and we'd get in bed and, and then we'd have to get out of bed and go in the foxhole and back and forth and back and forth. And I said, I'm not getting in that, you know, I'm, I'm going to sleep it out there. And then all of a sudden it started, stuff started raining all around us. And I, just as I got into the foxhole, a piece went right zooming by my ear. And I dug it out of the bank, and it was a real nasty looking. It was, you know, this, this real sharp edges, a piece of shell. I mean, the, the flak, that's what knocks down the airplanes. And that's the closest I come to getting it. <laughs> it was right there. And I carried that around in my toolbox for quite a while, <laughs> but I finally lost it someplace. So you were in a, around Luzon, you're doing support to the aircrafts that are basically supporting all kinds of activities. Um, what kinds of missions were these planes, do you remember the most? I mean, were they rescue missions? Um, no, I don't think they were. They, I can't really say because I you know, wasn't on the other end. But I think most of it was picking up people, picking up uh, orders, maybe picking up... Uh, maps and stuff like that that other people were using but they kept pretty busy and of course the roads were terrible and so this made the L5 uh, pretty pretty useful one uh, one thing that reminded me of the saving that watching those guys 
pull that pilot out in, a, in their asbestos suits is I was up in Lingai and we hadn't been there too long and I was by myself and I uh, <coughs> had some supplies that I had picked up at uh, the big well, the big air, big airport and so I was driving in a jeep right alongside of the um, the strip the the main strip and it was pretty busy because they were bombing uh, in Manila. We were probably a hundred and some miles north of Manila. And they were bombing Manila and they were, uh, and somebody told me afterwards that they were bombing in the uh, legislative buildings and they were having trouble getting to them because they were hiding down in the lower levels and so they were had uh, all these floors on. So they were had some kind of a delayed detonation type of thing. So they were penetrating. and Well, that was part of the story because as I was driving the Jeep, I looked up there and there's a bomb going right along and keeping right up with me for just a short time. It was, you know, it looked mighty big and it, it was big. <laughs> and uh, then I looked back a little bit and then there's this airplane that the bomber, you know, they were, he was in takeoff and he didn't make it and the bomb and flew out of the racks and was a, just a centrifugal force it was ahead of it. So uh, I was right next to the to the plane and it stopped and the dust all over. So I jumped out of the Jeep and ran out to the the plane. There was no emergency people there yet. I was there before the emergency people. So there was a couple of truck drivers. They did the same thing, and they were behind me. You know, I really was fast in those days. I was a, the best person in it. When we took our <laughs> our physical fitness tests, I was the best of all that because I'd been in track and cross country in high school. Anyway, I got to this plane and it seemed like the dust was still settling around it and I got to the cockpit and there was no pilot in it. So I looked the other direction then across the, and there he was waving, you know, like that. Of course, the first thing you want to do is get out of the way because there's a lot of chance for um, broken wires and fire, you know. So, so I turned and ran the other way real fast. So that was, but that was the end of my rescue days right there. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> well, one of the questions I'm interested in uh, with the, the veterans from St. Matthews is. How did your faith influence your service, and how did your service influence your faith? Well, I, I tried <clears throat> when we were in places, I remember Statesboro, Georgia. We didn't have a, a, a chaplain. We didn't have any. We could have gone to the, the local town, but you didn't have any transportation. But we had a chaplain that uh, came to, he, we, he got to us last. 
So it was always about supper time on Sunday evening. And he was available for anybody that wanted to go. Well, out of the 160 guys, there were about four or five of us that went to church. <clears throat> and if I got anything out of it was that how hard that guy worked and and how he stressed the point of how you treat people and treating other people, you know, other people that we're going to run into and overseas and so forth. And I thought that was really excellent training for me. Just too bad that there weren't more people that paid attention to it or didn't take advantage of it. Uh, but it, I, treating people was well was one of the best uh, one of the things that I thought was important for my job over there for example in Leyte uh, no it wasn't Leyte it was in Luzon we got settled down there was this young family that lived right alongside of this strip there and and uh, the man w wanted to work all the time if he could you know and if we'd hire him for little jobs, he dug our well that we used to make a, uh, so we could take showers with and so forth. And he would down in that hole and digging away in that. And I tried to give him uh, some of the things that I had that, that they might eat, you know. And, uh, they had a little girl who was three years old, <coughs> Alfreda Manungdo, I remember that, and she, she, they taught her to say that in English, you know, and she, she was real proud, and she'd tell me her name is Alfreda Manungdo. Well, I got on a, uh, I was supposed to take a bunch of guys down in, to Manila, you know, on uh, some leaves, short leaves, and they signed me the truck driver. I don't know why, but uh, I had never had much experience or any experience driving trucks except in a little bit in the service. But anyways, I drove all the way down, all the way back. But I bought some silk material, red, real bright red silk, and gave it to the Manungdos and it wasn't a couple of days and that little girl showed up with that real bright red dress on it and so forth. And and they just kept, it was embarrassing, you know, they just kept bringing me things, you know, cooked chicken in, and they couldn't afford stuff like that. Oh, another thing, he, he had uh, pains in his stomach and complained about that a lot and so I asked our medic, I said, could you take a look at this guy and see if you could help him? And he did, and he did. He had parasites, and he uh, he got him the necessary pills and, and cleared that up. I did get a letter from him uh, after I left that they had my address when I had moved on and I did get one letter from him and it was very touching. And there were other people. 
uh, um, when we were down in southern Luzon, we were uh, attached to uh, 157th Regimental Combat Team for about five months, so that's quite a period to be away from your own outfit. Then. But anyway, we had an, a good airstrip, a good base, being a, a Japanese uh, air base. And there's a little kid kept showing up. He had a good idea. Was there weren't we didn't have much traffic going in and out other than our planes, but he found that if somebody came in there in a C-47 or something like that, he could sell them bananas. That the the strip was a, not in town and or other, but boy, you know, anybody come off ship or something, you know, they'd buy any any bananas a kid had. So he he was a he was always there, seven days a week. And of course his bananas got ripened, fell off the stem and all that. And I'd buy them and and also I took care of them. And and, and uh, somebody said, if you're going to keep that kid around here, and it's about ten years old, then you're going to have to cut his hair. So I did. I cut his hair. And I gave him rations, and I bought his bananas that were falling off this, off the stem, and so forth. And one day, and there were some ladies caught on to this too. They then they'd come out to sell us chickens and bananas and papayas, and uh, they were talking to him in Tagalog, uh, and so I couldn't really follow the. The discussion, and they're talking to the little boy, and they had asked him who his father was, and he pointed to me and said, "He is," and that really got me. And uh, it was just—I uh, didn't really feel that I was taking care of him or anything, but I was looking after. Him. And he knew it. And another time, um, we had, uh, for guards at night, we had Filipino guerrillas. And they were pretty good. They, there were guerrillas and then there were guerrillas there. You know, some of them were pretty good and some of them weren't. But these young guys were, were good. And we didn't have any problems with our, our planes at night. You know, nobody sabotage or anything like that and one day they'd been working hard about some some project they were running so I said let's go swimming you know get over and then the one of them said yeah he, he knew a place a spring that was good enough we could swim in and so we took off our shirts and just swam in our shorts and when he did I found he had a hole that started here and they merged right under his arm, and it was, you know, really pretty nasty looking. And it had healed, and I said, what happened? He said, well, he got shot by Japanese, and they were making a raid. And that guy must have been shooting right at his heart, you know. But I said, well, how did you get over that? And he said, he said he couldn't go home, because if he'd go home with a wound on him, you know, they'd kill him and his family. And, and said he'd put leaves some kind of leaves on that wound 
and and that's the kind of things that I ran into the you know the people the people really suffered a lot and that uh, we did a good job going in there and and uh, relieving of that of that. Well, those are very very powerful and, and memorable stories. Is is there anything else that when you reflect back on your service that that immediately comes to mind? Like the most memorable thing that you recall? Yeah, uh, we were down in uh, southern Luzon, Legaspi. That's where that was attached to the 157 Regimental Combat Team. We had three or four L5s there and the same number of mechanics and pilots. And it was late in the afternoon. And that field was a good field, but didn't have any lights on it, of course. And a couple of officers came from the, from the uh, people we were supposed to be helping down there, the, the 157th Regimental Combat Team, and said that we've got a problem. There's some people that are trapped on a ridge up about 40 miles up into the jungles, and we can't get to them today. And they're running out of ammunition. It would be possible to drop some ammunition on them. And of course, we didn't have any nothing uh, left. We he said, "Could you just throw it out the out of the plane?" He said, "Yeah, we could try." And uh, he said, "Well, we need a pilot, and they need somebody to throw it out of the plane." And so my favorite pilot, Ed, said he would do it. And I said, well, "Okay, I'll throw it out." And we had to take the door off of the back seat there was a long door before using for putting litters in and take the seat out and then there was a, just a flat uh, plywood thing so that was it and we put in six boxes of M1 ammunition and um, I tied myself into the with a piece of rope that's the only thing I knew to keep I don't know what I'd do if I'd fall out on that rope, because you know, we were probably doing about 120, you know, rolling over. So at any rate, we had no trouble finding them. Uh, they had pretty good maps, and besides that, when we flew over them the first time, they were just cardboard all over, and they were lining their foxholes with cardboard that they used for the sea rations and stuff, you know. And so we knew right where every one of them was. I could see them all down there. So we'd go over, we went over six times, and each time we'd drop one box. And they said, you've got to put it right in the foxholes. <laughs> and that's about what we did. You know, I saw some of it hitting and banging and splitting open, but they got the ammunition. And they... Uh, survived and while we were up there you know and I thought uh, it's been, are they going to be taking shots at us they may have been because I'd see little red flashes going up every now and then but not one hit us 
and they may not have they may not have, they may have been told not to shoot uh, the the Japanese you know they just just would give away their positions well uh, so how long were you in the, the, the theater of combat? I mean, about a year. A couple, a month or two was, uh, maybe two, two, yeah. The um, war was over when we were down and uh, attached to this, when I was down and attached to the 157. So they brought us back and uh, we my next assignment was to go up north or you know and uh, it was a little um, problem they were getting uh, trying to get the planes up to Japan and then to Korea and um they were going to fly them up, and that was <laughs> that theory. Well, that theory worked, but um, the first half they got them up there okay, but then the second half uh, they were having bad trouble. You know, they you have the rainy season and all of that. You you don't take off in those little planes with a lot of rain, and. Uh, I was in. Well, they sent me to Okinawa on a LST, and I had, we had par- some parts in that. We were waiting at Okinawa. They were going to fly from the Philippines to the Okinawa to Japan. Well, that first flight was eleven hours. Eleven hours with those L5s, and they didn't, they didn't have enough give gas for that. So they put belly tanks in the back seat strapped them in air on the frames and then ran that extra gas through the engines and that's how they got to Okinawa and then more gas then up to Japan. They also had uh, these uh, big flying boats. They had one of those going along did the navigating. For the navigation, all we had was a little auto compass sitting up there. (laughs) And... uh, they they got one batch of them all the way up there, and all all the way, and then one up to Japan, and they were having trouble getting getting the the rest of them there. Quite a few of them, like twelve. So they sent me back to the Philippines. Uh, sent me back to the uh, northern tip of the Philippines. There was a, again another. Japanese strip there, and that's where they were sitting waiting. And um, they were had some hotshot that was going to get us up there. And he said, one time he had lined up, and I I I had my tools all on a C forty seven, and we're going to go to Formosa, and then over to Okinawa. Uh, But still, here they all came back after they had left. I, but I'd gotten on that 47 already. I thought, well, I'm going to get C4 Mosa. <laughs> but I didn't. And then they they scratched the whole thing. It was, they 
pilots got uh, the more they thought about it, the worse worse it got, and it it was a very dangerous thing to do. But they did get part of them up there, and then eventually I went on <coughs> back to Okinawa and then up to Japan and and at uh, Fukuoka. Uh, after a couple of weeks in Japan, and I went over to Korea, and I spent the rest of the time that I had to go home. Uh, now, what do you remember about going home? Well, that was a very delightful thing. <laughs> <laughs> and when we, what I really remember when we got back to, we took the northern route, so it been it was really rocky. But when we got into the in California, they had a steak dinner. No matter what time of day it was, everybody got a steak dinner. And it was really wonderful. Oh, and the first thing was some ladies, the Red Cross, I think, or Salvation Army, come with pitchers of milk and gave us uh, big glasses of milk. And that was really great. When was that? What, what time frame did you come back? Uh, January of uh, 46. And uh, that was a couple of months after the cessation of the... Well, one last question. Um, as you, you know, it's almost 70 years since you were over there um, on some of those islands. Um, what do you reflect back on your service? What did your service mean to you? Well, it, it meant helping people. I felt like we really did a good job of helping the people in the Philippines. And, of course, we were helping ourselves, too, because we had a lot of assets there, and we had suffered a lot. A lot of people had suffered. So I thought that this was something we had really done and they really done right, but it was at a terrible expense. I flew over Hiroshima, uh, going back to Japan, and I. it just, you know, it really brings up the question about did we have to really do that? Well, we did just as bad a job in, in uh, Germany, you know, in the towns that we just, smashed up and uh, Tokyo uh, firebombing was just as killed as many and more people as they did in Hiroshima but the Hiroshima was one bomb dropped you know and I thought what a terrible terrible thing we're doing but that terrible terrible thing probably saved me I, if I, they were going to keep me in that with that 157th then they were going to be a a decoy or something like that, you know, that was the scuttlebutt. But uh, I felt that we had done uh, a really good job. And then for coming for coming back, how did I, what did I think about coming back? I had it all planned out what I was going to do. And when uh, we landed in California, in less than a, a week, I was sitting in class in a GI Bill. And so I went to, it was at Indiana University, it was an extension, 
and that's why I started there because it was handy and I'd just come home and it did but I worked in, in the summer and I worked in a, a foundry and that and I went to Purdue I found out that uh, scholarship was something that was probably my thing I was in the upper one percent of the graduating class at Purdue and then I uh, I got a master's at Missouri and then I got a doctorate in Southern Illinois and so I figured that's well I got feedback you know that was but that was my opportunity a lot of people didn't take that opportunity and I could do it Well, very good. Well, thank you very much for the time, and I know this is a tough thing to think back on sometimes. Yeah, I wrestled around for a couple of days, you know, and I didn't remember anything, you know, there was, but I other stories I didn't tell you about, but, uh, but it, it all came back. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you doing this for us. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime Experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.